I asked my son for permission to share this anecdote, but let me tell you of a dinner conversation 11 years ago in 2010. As we sat around the table, five-year-old Caleb said out of the blue, do you know what I would preach on if I could preach a sermon? Well, uh, we looked at each other and said, no, what would you preach on? I would preach on, where did evil come from? So, oh, well, what, what would you say? Well, I don't know. But it's a good question. It would be a good sermon. Well, whether you're 95, 55, or just 5, sometimes our thoughts keep progressing and progressing, and then we get to a point where we go, what is the answer to that? How in the world does that make sense? What is there that could make any sense of what's going on? Well, the question of evil, what it is and where it came from, has arisen in almost every mind. In regards to the Christian understanding, the philosopher David Hume stated the problem clearly. If God is good and perfect, he would want to abolish evil. If God is all-powerful, he is capable of abolishing all evil. Since evil exists, God is not good, or he is not all-powerful. Or some would just say God does not exist. Perhaps you've had this issue thrown at you by a skeptical friend or relative. Maybe you've wrestled with it yourself, or you've just overheard it. But what do you do when you have such questions or challenges raised to your faith? Sadly, some Christians respond by just avoiding the questions, acting as though it's bad to ever have doubts or questions. And they may even say, don't don't question, just have faith, just believe. Yet when the Bible talks about faith, it does not mean an irrational hope that something is true, even though all the evidence goes against it. Rather, the Bible talks about faith as the proper response to all of the evidence before us. Thus, Jesus, when he came to earth, he performed many signs and miracles to show that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. When Thomas doubted the resurrection, Jesus didn't reply, just believe, but instead he showed him his hands and his side, giving him evidence. And as we begin, we must realize that though God gives us answers, He doesn't tell us everything. Thus, this sermon is not going to solve every dilemma. It's not going to answer every single question. It's not going to give an irrefutable irrefutable logical argument that no one can refute. Yet, though our knowledge is not exhaustive, God's Word does give us an accurate and true knowledge of Him, ourselves, and this world. So as we dive into this, we need to look at three big topics. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. First, we need to just deal with the reality that evil exists. Second, we need to recognize that we all long for good and justice. And then lastly, we need to turn to God's revelation, and we'll look at four aspects of this. But all of this, again, is coming from 1 Kings 22. In verse 23 of 1 Kings 22, it said, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. And last week we raised the questions, did God lie to Ahab? Is God the cause of sin? Well, I'm going to answer those, but I'm going to delay a little longer. And for now, we're going to just note that evil exists. 
And while our atheistic friends, maybe like David Hume, claim that the problem of evil is the major reason they could never believe Christianity, I'm going to argue that actually the reverse is true. Just consider the fact, if atheism is true, then God does not exist. But if God does not exist, then there can be no consistent and rational definition of evil. For the problem of evil for them is, what is evil and what on any basis can you say that? Now just think, if we're trying to say something's right or wrong, on what basis can we say that? Well, you can have some unchanging standard like God, but our atheistic <coughs> friends won't go on that. Or you can look at nature. What does nature show us? Or we can look at what do people say? Well, we already realize that our atheistic friends will not agree with God, but what about people? What is the humanity? What do we say is right and wrong? That's how we'll learn. We'll study it, yet smart people studied and read and for most of our lifetime, many of them said slavery was fine. Very intelligent people in Germany thought that the Nazis and what they did to the Jews were fine. And so having the majority opinion does not make something right or wrong. And what about nature? Maybe we could just look and see when things are the way they should be in nature. Then we'll know what's right and wrong. And yet in the bee world, the buzz buzz little guys, when the queen can no longer produce drones... She's killed. Well, hopefully, moms, once your years of childbearing are over, we don't go, hey, it's natural. Sorry, you're no longer useful. And yet that's what nature shows us is normal. And yet that would be a chilling way to determine right and wrong. However, if you don't have a basis that says this is always right and wrong, then you can't say there's a problem of evil because you can't call anything evil. And so, while most people will agree with what we're saying, I'm trying to help us think through the implications. If we're from nothing and going to nothing, and the rule of the universe is the survival of the fittest, then there can be no ultimate right or wrong. Now, I'm not at all saying atheists are immoral people. There are very many fine and moral atheistic people. The point is, do they have a rational basis to claim that something is evil or good? And while we should never be offensive in our manner, sometimes when we hear these questions, we need to respond with good questions back, showing that there are bad implications of what they're saying. And yet while most people agree there's something wrong in the world, what we call evil, we then have different paths. What is this evil? Some people say evil exists because of oppressive leaders, or economic differences, or lack of education, or class structures. And yet, while the Bible agrees all of those can lead to evil, it says the main reason, the ultimate cause of evil is sin. Now, often Christians are misunderstood here. When we talk about sin, we are not first talking about actions done by us. When we talk about sin, we're talking about the power inside of us that makes us want to live for ourselves. It's the cry to rule our own life, to have life go my own way. In essence, it's the desire to be God. It's ultimately selfishness. And this is just obvious if you stop and think about it. No parent has their little toddler and says, Hey, I just want to let you know when we go to the store, I want you to scream if you don't get what you want. I want you to say mine when you want that toy and the other child doesn't have it and really kick your heels on the ground. And yet, those children... For every generation have never been taught this, they all know it. Well, how do they know it? 
because it's innate inside of us. Now, we live in a fairly wealthy society, and so we often go, but no, look, people are kind, they share. Well, yes, when we all have things going well, but remember back about a year ago when things were beginning to be locked down, and what happened? You couldn't find a roll of toilet paper in the city. You could go to the stores, and the shelves were empty. And I don't know about you, but I didn't see anyone coming back going, you know what, I'm kind of hoarding and I got way too much than I need. And so what I need to do is come back and share with everyone else. No, everyone thought about themselves. Everyone innately is selfish. That is the root of sin. And that's even what we've seen in 1 Kings 22. Ahab's in charge and he wants a vineyard. So what does he do? I'll just kill Naboth and I'll go take it. Now, by God's common grace, we're not as wicked as we can be. And people do act in selfless ways. Yet if we give an honest look at our society and our own hearts, we know the instantaneous impulse to consider ourselves more important than others. In other words, we see sin. And it's not just that we know evil exists, though, but that leads to our second point. We long for good and justice. That driver cuts you off. That order they said would be ready by four o'clock. You show up at four and they go, oh, we haven't started that yet. The product that was supposed to last is damaged in the first hour by your kids. And these are all first world problems. What about if your land is stolen? Your people are wrongly imprisoned or killed and your children are abused. You know, due to such horrors, we cry for justice. Even in God's word, we read of such cries. Psalm 94, 3-7. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Or Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence. And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth, goes forth perverted. And yet, though we know these cries of our hearts for justice, have you ever considered how odd it is that we have it? When the queen bee is killed for being unable to fulfill her role, half the colony doesn't strike. In fact, none of them do. When the lion kills gazelles, there's no war tribunal calling out special genocide. We could go on and on. But humans are unique in the fact that we cry out for justice. Well, why is that the case if we came from nothing and are going to nothing? Well, there is no explanation. The only explanation that we cry out for justice is that God made us in his image and that God is the type of being who cries out for justice. God making us in his image means he's given us a conscience in which Paul writes in Romans 2, 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have a law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts where their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
You know, we cry for justice because God has written his character, his law on our hearts. And he gave us a conscience, which he did not give to animals. Again, queen bee, killers and lions don't spend their nights agonizing over what they've done. Yet as we, God's image, we cry out for justice and we recognize our own sin. So we don't just need to go by our conscience though. Because God has revealed himself. And this makes all the difference in understanding these issues. And so now we're going to turn and dive specifically into God's word. Looking at what has he revealed about these issues. And we need to see four big things. The first is God's providence. He controls all things. Second, human responsibility. Third, God uses everything, even evil, for his glory and our good. And then lastly, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment of evil on himself. But first, we need to see God's providence. He controls all things. Now, I'm going to give a multitude of verses. Uh, you note takers, I'm glad you take notes. You're not going to be able to keep up. I'm sorry. If you would like these, uh, just tell me and I will give them to you. But I'm just forewarning you, it's going to go quick. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does Whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1.11 declares God works all things according to the purpose of his will. And then the Bible gives various things that God controls. God controls the weather. Psalm 135.7 He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God controls the leader of every city, state, nation, and world. Daniel Praise in 2, 20 through 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. But God doesn't just control who is in power. He controls them when they are in power. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God controls every animal and even the hairs on your head. Matthew 10, 29-30 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. God controls the places and times that you live. Why are you alive in 2021 and not 1921? Why are you in Wichita Falls and not Wichita, Kansas? Because... Acts 17.26 God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God controls the actions of your day. James 4.13-15 Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We even have seen that in 1 Kings 22, because Micaiah was called in to prophesy whether they should go into battle. And Micaiah says, no, if you go Ahab, you will die. And yet 400 prophets are saying, no, you'll go and live. And Ahab even says, put Micaiah in prison. When I come back, I will judge him. And yet Micaiah says, no. If you come back, then the Lord did not prophesy through me. And then we saw this picture 
of a throne room in heaven, God's throne, and then Ahab's throne on earth. And the question is, whose throne rules? Well, Ahab goes out in disguise to come back from the battle, and yet he does not come back alive, because God's throne room throne room rules all, even what happens in your everyday life. God controls your ability to speak, hear, and every other one of your senses. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute, or deaf, or sing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God controls the destiny of seemingly random chance or luck items. Proverbs 16.33, the law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God controls the devil. We read all of Job 1 at the beginning of the service, and you may have noticed that there Satan comes and he says, look, Job only worships you because you give him good things. You take away those good things and he'll no longer worship you. And so then God says, you can do anything but take his life. And Job goes and does that very thing. It's as we sang of earlier, the devil roars, but he cannot harm. The devil is God's devil. Nothing, let me repeat, Satan does nothing that God does not allow. Satan is under God's control. And that's why Job responded, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you may have noticed the important verse right after that. It then says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Yet at this point, some people will try to save God's reputation by limiting his providence, his control. They're concerned, well, look, if you say God controls all things, there's a lot of horrible things. And you're saying God controls that. And that makes God look bad. So we need to kind of polish up his reputation. Harold Kushner wrote a famous book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he writes, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die. You know, Kushner believes that to maintain a God who is worthy of worship, he can't say like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You know, sometimes people explain God's lack of control by claiming God is battling evil. Yet God is in no battle because there's no one to compete against. There's no equal force to him in the universe. The devil is his devil. Others will say, well, look, God chooses not to stop these things because he wants to maintain our free will. Yet we have to be clear what the Bible means or what we mean when we use the term free will. And I'm going to give two quotes here by a man named D.A. Carson, who talks about God's sovereignty and then our human responsibility, which gets into the idea of free will. He writes, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. He goes on and he writes, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose... They rebel, they obey, they believe, they defy, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. Now that's a kind of big phrase. But what he's saying is, look, God never responds to humans. God is always the sovereign initiator over every event. Now if you're quick on your biblical toes, 
you'll think of the many passages in which God says he changes his mind or he relents due to human prayers or actions. And it would take a whole nother sermon to dive into all those passages. But in each one of those, you can see that God changes his mind, so to speak, or he relents because he wanted them to do these things. God will say, you will be cursed. And then they confess their sins and God relents. Well, God wanted them to do this. God was sovereign even over their confession, their repentance. You know, in discussing this, we really need to keep a distinction in our mind. And that is God's will of decree, God's will of decree, and God's will of desire. God's will of decree is what he has declared will happen. And it always, 100% of the time, will happen. God's will of desire is what he wants humans to do, but he has given us freedom to choose. And so, the Bible is arguing and stating both. God is 100% control of everything. He's sovereign, and also, humans are responsible. You see, God does not need to get off the hook. We just need to affirm what Scripture states. And so let's show... I've shown from many passages God's sovereignty. So let's look at this idea that humans are responsible for their actions and will be punished or rewarded. James chapter 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, God is not the one who is responsible for our temptations, since God can't be tempted by evil. Now, God's nature hates evil. He is pure light and good, 1 John 1, 5 says, and thus he is completely unable to be tempted to do evil. You know, it's not that God won't do evil, it's that it's impossible for him to do evil. It is like me. It's not that I just won't fly. It's that I am unable to fly. I have no physical ability without a plane or something like that to be able to fly. And since God doesn't tempt us, well, where does it come from? Well, James is clear. It comes from within every one of us. It's what we began with, that we are sinful. We have innate desires for selfishness. And if we don't pull that sinful seed, it will give birth to sin and then death. In other words, our actions will have consequences of either death or life, condemnation or commendation. We could quote numerous other Bible verses that say something like Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36, where he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. He didn't say, since God decrees all things, then you're not going to be held responsible. And as we stated, the Bible is affirming both of these. God is completely sovereign and we are responsible. Now, how do those work out? Well, in some ways, it's a mystery. But we do see several passages where they are both clearly affirmed. Probably the most famous is in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. And there, Peter preaches a sermon. And in verses 22 and 23, he proclaims, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now Peter, without skipping a beat, says Jesus was delivered up to death both by God's definite plan, Jesus was killed because God planned it, and he was killed by them. The perfect Son of God who never committed any sin or crime was put to death because God planned to redeem the world through that death. God planned it. It was his decree. As well, though, Jesus was put to death because sinful men hated Jesus and wanted to keep their authority. Peter sees both of these as true. There's no contradiction in them. Thus, many people are concerned. Well, look, if you say God's in control of everything, if he's over everything by his decree, well, then that's going to lead us to these things called fatalism or stoicism. And yet we see here that's not true. Fatalism thinks that our fate is determined and nothing can be done to change it. And yet we see in Acts 2 or we see in other places that God's decree and our actions matter. In Acts 27, God showed the Apostle Paul that the ship that he was on would not be shipwrecked. Acts 27, 23. But then Paul goes and tells the captain, Acts 27, 31, that they should not let the, the soldiers escape or the ship will be destroyed. Well, wait, Paul, don't you just believe that, that vision that God gave you that the ship won't be destroyed? Well, yes, Paul did. But Paul also knew that doesn't mean that we can then just do whatever. We are still responsible for our actions. Paul knew God's promise of safety was not an excuse for passivity or the term fatalism. Or, when Paul was in prison, he wrote to the Philippian church that his deliverance would come through their prayers and the Spirit. He didn't just say, God wants to get me out of prison, so he'll do it. He said, no, it's going to happen through your prayers. Your actions matter. We have responsibility in actions we should do. You affirming both of these, God's sovereignty, our responsibility, also keeps us from Christian stoicism. Stoicism is when you're stoic and nothing bothers you emotionally. And it wrongly says, well, look, since God controls all things, you should never be upset when bad things come in your life. All things work together for good, right? Well, yes, they work together for good, but they are not necessarily good. Thus, you can read through the Psalms or Jesus and Paul, and they all asked for situations to change. They all cried. They all lamented. Because knowing God's sovereignty does not make us stoics. In fact, it makes us cry out all the more. And understanding these truths is really important when you encounter evil, disastrous events. The adults may remember back to 9-11, or this happens almost every time, when something happens, what do people say about God? Well, some people rightly try to show that God does not delight in destruction. So they say, well, God wasn't in it. And yet, well, that's partially true. Lamentations 3.33, for God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. That's not the whole picture. Other people rightly trying to show that God was in control of everything say it, but maybe without showing the other part, but they're coming across verses like Amos 3, 6. It says, is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city like New York unless the Lord has not done it? And so we got to keep both of these in harmony. Yes, 
every single thing that happens, God is in control. And yes, in some mystery, he laments over the evil in this world. D.A. Carson again writes, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. Yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes, or basically meaning to people. And as men and women have wrestled with these difficult issues, this is what they've said. They've said, yes, God controls all, but he is not the one who created or authored sin. Though he uses it and is directly behind it, though he's not the cause of it. And that's what we saw in 1 Kings 22 or in Acts 2, where it said God planned Jesus' death, but also evil men killed Jesus. So let's consider the question I've put off long enough. Did God lay lie to Ahab? Well, no, because God told Ahab through the prophets, you're being deceived. It's hard to lie to someone if you say, hey, look what I'm telling you is all a deception, so you shouldn't believe what they're saying. Well, I'm telling you the truth, so you should believe that they're deceiving you. God was not lying to him. Well, is God the cause of sin? Because he asked in verse 20, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Well, no, because God allows someone who wants to entice Ahab to do it. As well, this is what Ahab wanted to hear. God is just giving Ahab exactly what he wanted. So we see this challenging dynamic. But if we're going to be faithful to God's word, we have to affirm both. And that really leads us to our third thing God reveals, and that God uses everything, even evil, for his own glory and our good. You may remember the charge of David Hume. His first premise, if you're going to use logical terms, was if God is good and perfect, he would want to abolish evil. And while that seems like a reasonable premise, we need to consider it. Is it logical that God would remove evil in the time frame that we think he should? Tim Keller explains this well by writing, Tucked away within this assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise. Namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Just because you or I can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen, doesn't mean there can't be one. Lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism is an enormous faith in one's own cognitive facilities. Or in other words, he's saying, look, we think we're really intelligent if we go, well, we can tell there's no good that's going to happen from this. And yet the creator of the universe couldn't tell that? As well, is it reasonable to think that good never comes from suffering? If you think good will never come from suffering, you'll never visit a dentist. They cause a lot of suffering, but they bring eventually, I've been told, some good from it. In World War II, missionary Darlene Dibler Rose was imprisoned by the Japanese. And with the other women and children, had to work in a prison camp to support the Japanese empire. Yet while they had to work hard, they were given minimal food and medical care. One of the worst aspects of camp life was when dysentery struck and their scant medicines couldn't battle it. Thus they hoped the person was physically strong enough to be purged with salt and then starved so as to clean the system, stop the diarrhea, and allow the inflamed intestines to heal. 
She writes, if the patient responded well, they would then slowly progress with rice water, plain rice porridge, and then rice. She goes on to write, It was one thing to use such drastic treatment with adults who understand the why, but for the children, sometimes it was almost not to be endured. Oh God, was it not awful? The pleading, hurt, haunted look in the eyes of the children whimpering, not able to understand why they were being thus treated? I had to encourage the mothers to believe that their children never doubted that they were loved. Those mothers allowed, they even caused their infants to suffer. Why? Because there was something better that would come from it. The children's lack of ability to comprehend didn't mean there was no purpose for causing them to suffer. In fact, the short-term suffering led to a longer-term, greater good. They would still live. Well, what could be such a good that evil would exist? Well, God's ultimate purpose and the greatest good in the universe is to display His glory. In Isaiah 48, 9-11, God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And we could give verse after verse showing that God does all things for His glory and our good. Thus, if God knows that suffering for a time, allowing evil a time, will enhance His glory and our good, then He will allow it. And part of that glory is in giving punishment, even punishment that we see given to Ahab dying in battle. So God uses all evil for the good of His glory and His people. Some of you may know well the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, who his brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery, and then he was lied about, went into prison, and yet then he rose to second in command in Egypt. Eventually he was over his brothers, and his brothers were before him, and they were afraid of what was going to happen. And yet he says to them in Genesis 50 verse 20, You meant evil against me. Again, human responsibility. This was your evil thing, but God meant it for good. Both the evil intent of humans and God's goodness were wedded together. The ultimate evil in this world was seen in the betrayal and death of Christ. But what do we call that wicked day? Good Friday. The most wicked thing is now called good. And so the last thing we should see about God's revelation is that the problem of evil is not just some theoretical thing out there. It's not theoretical to God either, for on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for evil upon himself. If the epitome of sin is selfishness, we see the epitome of righteousness in Jesus, who was selfless. The only being who did not deserve death, who deserved no punishment, took on punishment, took on death out of love, and so that justice might be served. Jesus never said a single cruel word. He never manipulated people or situations for his own purpose. He never lied. He lived in perfect harmony with those around him. 
Yet he gave up an eternally perfect life of love with his Father. And he entered into our suffering and misery, taking the greatest suffering, death and isolation from all who loved him. Tim Keller shows how significant this is in wrestling with this question of suffering and evil. He writes, if we look at the cross, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. A God who is willing to do that is worthy of all trust and praise. Hume says, if God exists, he must remove evil. And God does, though just not on our timetable. On the cross, he sent his son to overcome and remove evil. Thus, one day, all evil will be done away, and we will live with God in a perfect world with no suffering for all eternity. And yet, even after all these answers, some of you probably still, I have some in my notes, questions that we didn't answer. We can't answer every single question. Now, notice this doesn't mean that we just bury our heads in the sand and go, well, we just trust God. Rather, it means God just hasn't chosen to reveal that to us. You know, we don't trust God because we fully understand Him. If that were the case, we would never trust any other human because we don't fully understand anyone, not ourselves, not our spouses. And yet, because they've shown themselves trustworthy in some things, we trust them with more. And God has shown Himself trustworthy in the cross and it leads us to trust Him more. And so claiming a level of mystery is not cheating, but it's rather essential when talking of God. Now many of you may think what I'm about to quote next is exactly where I should be getting such things, but one of the best resources I've found on this is Philosophy for Dummies, right up my alley. In that book, Tom Morris writes, any response to the problem of evil that does not allow an active role for a concept of mystery doesn't grasp the magnitude of the issues under consideration. If we couldn't offer any possible explanation for why God might allow evil in the world, we couldn't justify using the concept of good in application to God. And yet, it doesn't follow that we must be able to tell an utterly complete story about what a creator of the universe is up to in all ways. As the church father John Chrysostom said, a comprehended God is not God. Any theism that doesn't ultimately point to mystery would not be a very believable worldview. So we must not regret our final use of the concept of mystery. It's not unfortunate. It's not a desperate ploy, but a necessary part of any exalted understanding of God. An exalted understanding that realizes that the greatest mystery is not how did evil get here, but why would God send his own son to take it upon himself? Why would he endure evil and suffering for us? What a profound mystery that God would do that for sinners like you and me. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we do not fully understand you. And yet the revelation you've given us is enough to trust you and to give our lives to you. Lord, most of all, we're thankful not that we can give our lives to you, but you have given your son's life for us. Lord, we don't have answers to everything, and so we cry out to you and we cling to you. May we be people 
of honesty. And may we be people who look at these issues knowing that you have given us a sure word in your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.